Good morning, River Oaks. My name is Art Cash. I'm discipleship pastor here at the church. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. We're preaching through the book of Titus, and we're attempting to answer the question, what makes a healthy church? So we started in chapter one, and we saw the importance of leaders who would hold firmly to the word of God, who would confront false teaching. In chapter two, we saw what should happen with the church family. For everybody that's been impacted by Jesus Christ, what those lives should look like. Here in chapter 2, 11 through 15, I'm going to make a statement to you that I think is, is fairly non-controversial. I think it's safe. I'm going to say to you that if somebody says to you, listen, I've got the secret to the Christian life. I've got the key on how to grow as a Christian. If somebody says that to you, I want you to run. I want you to, to head on out of there, okay? Or at least I want you to proceed with some Berean-like caution and measure what they're saying against Scripture. So with that said, what I'm going to tell you today is that I believe this passage is the key to the Christian life. We only had one person leave. Uh, you got to come back, Michaela. One person leave in, in first service, and we chased him down, brought him back. Let's, let's see if we can, can make the argument about this passage, because the key to the Christian life, it's not a secret. It's not a secret. It's right here in the pages of Scripture that our Father gives us. It's especially clear in this passage, though. It really is our main point, the key to our Christian life, relying on grace and anticipating glory. Relying on grace and anticipating glory. That's how we live the Christian life. And some questions and answers there on the PowerPoint, we'll, we'll get to them. But I just want you to see this. Relying on grace, anticipating glory is how we live the Christian life. So I want you to see it in Titus 2, 11 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Father, we would ask that by your spirit, you would open our hearts and our ears to your word. Help us to not only understand it, but to believe it. Help us see Jesus, his work in, in all of our lives. Father, help us to see him clearly and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. So that saying that Titus 2, 11 through 15, that it's the key to living the Christian life, I know that's a bold statement. I know that, that I'm, I'm testing you here. So I want to try and prove it by showing that most of the major questions that we have as Christians are answered in these verses. So before Google and Waze 
we had these things called maps. They actually were, were paper, okay? For a while there, Heather loved like giving atlases to the kids at Christmas, see if we could stoke that love of maps. Before Amazon, we had these things called malls, okay? And those two things came together when you would walk in the door and there were like these kiosk map things that would tell you exactly where you are. It would say, you are here, right next to Cookie Factory and Foot Locker. So you could get your double doozy in your shoes. But you knew where you were. Okay, You knew you are here. What I love about this passage is that it tells us where we are. You're right here in this present age, in between the two appearings of Christ. It tells us how we got here, saved and redeemed. It tells us who we are a people for his own possession. It tells us what we're to be doing and how we're to be doing it. Good works, trained by grace. And it tells us what comes next. We're anticipating God's glory in the appearance of Jesus Christ. So this is an orienting feeling to have when you're looking at at a passage of Scripture and all the questions that you might have about it actually have satisfying answers. That's where we are today. So what highlights the importance of this passage, it's not just getting our questions answered. It's the force of Paul's argument in verse 15. Look at it with me. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We're actually going to try to do verse 15 this morning. Paul gives Titus four different commands in one verse to make sure that he communicates to the churches in Crete that he tells them what these things are, why they're so important, and says, let no one disregard you. Four strong commands, insisting on the truths that we just read. So I think the, the truth that Paul commands Titus to declare is this. Believer, you are here. You're here in this present age. And the same grace that saves you sanctifies you. The same grace that saves you will see you through. And you can have hope as you live your life relying on grace and anticipating glory. So grace, hope, glory, we can hear those words. If we're honest, sometimes grace and and hope and glory, they feel distant. They feel like a platitude. They, They feel like a churchy word. I mean, what good is hope to you when you're trying to fill up your gas tank? How do you access grace when you have a, a child who's, who's sick and nothing seems to be working? Look at his God's glory when you're wrestling with a sin pattern that just seems to, to overwhelm you, that makes you want to give up. Good are any of those things, hope and glory and grace. If you're a believer... The reality is that grace and hope and glory are closer to you than your own heartbeat. What Paul wants us to see in this passage is that grace is not a thing, but a person. Hope is not a wish. Hope is a person. And glory is not an abstract. Glory is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. This is something that Luther and the Reformers and Calvin, this is a hill that they would die on. This was a distinction between Protestants and Catholics. Grace is not a thing that's infused. Grace is the blessing of God in Christ. 
So right now, through the Holy Spirit, you are united to Jesus. You are united to him in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. You're united to him as he reigns right now. So grace, hope, and glory, they're not merely benefits that we get just by believing in Jesus. Grace, hope, and glory are Jesus. And we have him. And he has us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. And here's how we know. Don't take my word for it. Again, I'm making the argument that this is the key to the Christian life. Look at the text. We see this word appearing twice. We see it in 11. The grace of God has appeared. We see it in 13. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory. We see both of these words, and it means epiphany. It means to reveal something that is already there, to bring it to light. So the grace of God, in verse 12, has appeared doing what? Bringing salvation, training. Specifically, the incarnation of Jesus brings the offer of salvation to all people. A person appears. A person saves, not a thing. So sometimes we talk about grace as unmerited favor extended to those who don't deserve it. Yes, but how? Through who? Jesus Christ in the flesh. Look at verse 13. We're waiting for our blessed hope. What is that hope? It's the second appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So not only is this one of the clearest declarations in all of Scripture that Jesus is God, it shows us what God's glory actually is. Glory is not just the weight or value of something. Glory is Jesus Christ. So what's the key to the Christian life then? Whether you were in Crete or Maryville, Tennessee, you live the Christian life in this present age by relying upon Jesus and anticipating his return. So next question, though, how did, we, how did we get here? How did we get to this point where that's what we're to do? The answer can be found in verses 11 and 14. In verse 11, the grace of God appears in Jesus Christ to bring salvation to all people. And the careful reader sees that and goes, well, hold on a second, all people? Is, is Paul changing his mind and now he's a, a universalist and Salvation is, is everybody. Remember our, our context here. Paul just explained to Titus how the truth of the gospel should impact everybody in the church. Male, female, young, old, slave, free. The gospel of Jesus Christ is available to everyone. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people, every language. The free offer of the gospel is available to all. That's good news. Our Lord shows no partiality. So neither should we as we share the gospel with anyone and everyone. <clears throat> For years we've had men and women going into the jail, going into assisted living to, to share the gospel. Right now you could come and talk to an elder. You could come and talk to, to Jen and Fritz Fiebig and be involved in the Knoxville International Network. We, we have the opportunity where you may not be able to go to the nations, but they're coming to us here in East Tennessee. We have an opportunity to engage every tribe and tongue with the gospel. What are we telling them though? 
telling them that Jesus saves. That's a phrase that we've, we've heard for years. Maybe you we were raised growing up and, and your parents asked you, what does it mean that Jesus died on the cross? It means he saved me. What does it mean though? How, how are we saved? What are we saved from? Yeah, I love our passage because it has the answers. Verse 14, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us. Gave himself means sacrifice. Jesus giving himself as a sacrifice is at the heart of the gospel. Sacrificing himself for a wicked, rebellious people. Unmerited favor personified towards those who deserve punishment. So, we hear about substitute. We hear about sacrifice. I, burden for you this morning is how, how to get it, how to understand it. My burden is for us to, to, to feel this somewhat, to, to, to not just let, okay, yes, sacrifice, got it. That's the heart of the gospel. So the, the story that comes to mind is one that Brian Chapel tells about two young brothers in his hometown who went out to play one afternoon they had a habit of going to uh, the, the lime piles and uh, at this quarry and, and, and jumping and landing in, in the soft lime. And it got to be uh, dinner time. They don't, they don't show up. Got to be evening. Uh, and the, the, the parents are extremely worried at this point. They're, they're going out with flashlights, their friends, family, searching for these two brothers. So they finally come to the, to the lime pile. They find the youngest brother buried up to his chest in the lime. And they say, where's your brother? Where's your brother? And the younger brother says, I'm standing on his shoulders, sacrificing himself for his younger brother to live. Now, the main difference in, in that story in us is we're not a lovable younger brother. We're not worthy. How did we get here? While we were weak and ungodly. Christ died for us. While we were sinners or lawless, according to verse 14, Christ gave himself for us. While we were enemies, not, not a lovable young brother who deserved to be saved. While we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son, Jesus, Romans 5. Man, what does that tell you about the character of the one who gave himself for you? We all love a good redemption arc in a book or a movie. The kids have, have read something or watched a show, watched a movie, and like the first question is, was there a redemption arc? Okay, did, did something happen with the, the bad guy that made him good in the end? Did somebody give themselves up in a sacrificial way to save others? I want to know. The problem with those stories, so much of the time is their self-redemption. The, the bad guy does something good and redeems himself in the end. Brothers and sisters, a slave cannot redeem himself. While you were still wrapped in your rebellion, Jesus gave himself for you in order to redeem you from your slavery to sin. How deceptive sin is, Titus 3, 3, we were so twisted up in it that we didn't even want to be rescued. Imagine that that younger brother fighting and kicking and screaming to be saved. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's slavery. But when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. What did he do? He saved us. He saved us. Grace in the flesh gives himself for the slave. The son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. You are blood bought, brothers and sisters. Who are you? You belong to him. Oh man, this is awesome. You belong to him, according to verse 14. You are a people for his own possession. This is what you were redeemed from and to, to belong to him. But how? I mean, there's a huge obstacle here. How can something as marred and as disfigured as the rebellious slave be in the presence of the Redeemer King, much less be adopted into his family? We we see it though right here in, in 14 a people for his own possession. So that's true. How does, it, how does it happen? Jesus does something for us between slavery and adoption. In verse 14, he purifies us for himself. He runs to you, even though you're covered in the filth of your own sin. He puts a ring on your finger, shoes on your feet, a righteous robe to cover you. And here, right here is where the battle for living the Christian life, reaches a fever pitch. Do you ever wonder what happened to the prodigal son after his father welcomed him back into the family? Did he ever feel tempted to go back to his prior way of living? Did he doubt his father's love for him as he replayed night after night all the reckless things that he'd done, the way that he lived, undignified, unclean in every way, living and eating in pig slop, defiled and defiling others? We don't know what he thought, but we can imagine it. This is a battle for your identity. Who are you? Are you a slave or an adopted child of the king? We know what the Bible says. So that's why we might be asking ourselves, if my father is the king, why do I keep acting like a slave? What do I keep returning to? Why? Remember that that section in Matthew 8 and 9 where Jesus touches a leper and heals him. Jesus heals a Gentile centurion servant. He heals a paralytic. He heals a bleeding woman who touched his garment. Jesus takes a dead girl by the hand and raises her to life. He touches the eyes of two blind men and restores their sight. Do you know what all of those people had in common? They were unclean. They were untouchable. And what does Jesus do? He appears and he touches them (laughs) with his infinite holiness. He cleanses the unclean. He purifies the impure. Here's what it looks like from 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What good is hope? This. We hope in him. And he purifies us. The key to the Christian life is is by the Spirit to fight for this truth. Fight for this. 
Not just believe, but, but living grounded in the truth of who he's made you to be. And he, here's the battle. The battle is, is to function out of God's favor, not out of your failure. That's the battle. Because if you're like me, it doesn't take me very long in the morning to see failure. I look in the mirror and there's, there's failure. I, I'm surrounded by my failures, by my sins, by my weaknesses. What's the answer? Brothers and sisters, his finished work speaks a better word than your constant failures. Jesus took the filth of your sin, your uncleanness onto himself on the cross and he's clothed you with his righteous purity. Whatever sins you've committed, whatever ways that you've defiled yourself or defiled others, whatever stain or filth clings to you still, dear Christian, you have been redeemed, you have been purified and now you are a people for his own possession by the spirit fight for this. This is the battle. So do you believe this truth this morning? Listen, you, you may doubt yourself, but, but please don't doubt him. Do you think somehow that his infinite grace could be exhausted by your puny sin? You, you are blood-bought. You are purified. Do you think somehow that he might let you go? and diminish his own glory and tarnish his own reputation? You may doubt you. Don't doubt him, his character, his faithfulness. So you're here. You're his. He's redeemed you. He's made you his own. But what do we do in the meantime? What should you be doing? Again, verse 14 clearly tells us good works. When we think about what that is, though. The rest of our lives, we're talking about the rest of, from today until glory, until you die or Jesus comes back, what are you to be doing? How do we do it? The what is clear in verse 14. Paul describes believers as those zealous for good works. Zealous means eager, a desire to do good deeds. Zeal and desire means that the good we do is to be done from the heart we get more detail in verse 12. We are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In other words, this is how we grow in godliness, grow in holiness. So while the what may be clear, the how, how we are sanctified, that's tripped up believers for thousands of years. If we just glance back at chapter 2 and we see all that we are to do, and not just what we're to do, but what's at stake in our obedience, we'll begin to feel the importance of how we are to do it. So here's your word cloud that didn't exactly work out well because you probably can't read it, okay? <laughs> but I want you to see that in just 10 verses of Titus 2, here are all the commands that are given all the things that should be happening in the lives of believers. Teach sound doctrine, be sober-minded, be dignified, be self-controlled, be sound in faith, be sound in love, be steadfast, be reverent in behavior. Do not slander, do not be a slave to wine. Teach what is good, train young women, be self-controlled, 
be pure, work at home, be kind, be submissive to your husband, be self-controlled, be a model of good works, show integrity in your teaching, be dignified with your sound speech, be submissive to your master, be well-pleasing, don't be argumentative, don't steal, show good faith. 26 commands in 10 verses. If you're still with me and want to add some more, the the four in verse 15 would get us to a nice round 30 in one chapter of Scripture. And what's at stake with your obedience to these commands? Look at verse 5. We obey so that the word of God may not be reviled. That's, That's pressure. We obey so that we do not disfigure the beauty of God, but in everything we adorn the doctrine of God. We're showing him to the world. So please feel the weight of 26 commands and your responsibility in obeying those commands. How do we do it? One, we know that they're, they're good commands. We can read what's written here and the logic is undeniable. The commands given to those who've been redeemed, purified, and adopted into the family of God, yes, they are things that we should be doing Commands that are designed for the good of believers and the church, but how? How in the world can we do any of this with so much riding on your success or failure? Surely, if if I'm telling you this passage contains the key to the Christian life, it will answer how we grow in godliness. And the answer is we're trained by grace and we're anticipating glory in verse 12 and 13. Praise God for his mercy that he doesn't just leave us in the lurch to try and figure it all out. He trains us. The same grace that saves you trains you. The grace of God has appeared not only bringing salvation, but trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. He trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And it's not just his grace that empowers It's looking ahead to the glory that will be revealed, the hope in Jesus appearing again. Tim Chester, he describes these dual motivations like this. I I love this phrase. Being pushed by grace and pulled by glory. That's how we live the Christian life. Pushed by grace, pulled by glory. His grace, it's not just irresistible, it's inevitable. We're being pushed and pulled in the same direction towards our great Savior and God, Jesus Christ. So the counter to that, the skeptic, maybe you grew up hearing this, it's easy believism. How you do the Christian life is actually this. Jesus did his part and now you do yours. He gave you this, now you owe him. He got you in, now you keep yourself there. As if saving you, was Jesus 50% and your obedience is your 50% instead of what this passage clearly teaches, which is the grace that saved you will sanctify you. Jesus who gave himself for you will sustain you in this life and the next. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, is not 50-50. It is 100% Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ from before the ages begin. Through the glory of eternity, he will see you through. It's no longer your life. It's Christ who lives in you, according to Galatians 2. 
the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. That's how the gospel fuels us. You are pulled from your old, dead way of living, and now you live united in Christ. Colossians 3, for you have died and your life is hidden. It's secure with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What good is glory? It's what we're looking forward to. We know that it will happen. Some may try to motivate you to good works and holiness through fear or through guilt, endless introspection. Have you really done enough to prove that you belong to Jesus? Are you currently doing enough to keep his approval? Do you know what fear and guilt-based motivations do to a believer? It erodes their assurance, shrivels their joy, attacks their identity, takes away their freedom. It puts them back into the slavery of self-righteousness or despair. But most of all, it minimizes what Christ has accomplished. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We cannot minimize that. We can't minimize what he will continue to do in the life of the believer. The grace that saves is a grace that sanctifies. He will carry you through. No wonder that Paul says to to Titus, declare these things, exhort, rebuke, let no one disregard you. The glory of Jesus Christ is at stake. He promises to train you. He is faithful. He will do it. So how? How does he train us in this thing called godliness? Verse 12, in this, if you don't take anything else away, this, this next section, this, this being trained and, and taught and empowered to turn away from what's evil and turn towards what's good, so significant. This word training it carries the meaning of rigorous instruction. It's ongoing. Training benefits the newbie. It benefits the veteran, whether you're a business professional, whether you're uh, an athlete, at the top of your game, training is beneficial. Training implies that growing as a Christian will take time. Thank God. Thank God for this verse that it doesn't read like the grace of Jesus appeared and now you're awesome. (laughs) Now you're perfect. Instead, it says training, which means it's going to take time. Training tells us something about the character of our triune God and how he's involved. So for anyone who's ever trained someone else, you know that it requires patience. The best trainers love to see those that they're training get it. So I love the days of you know, having the, the new hire server come in and, you know, what are you having for lunch? I'm having the, the well-done burger. Are you? I mean, really? Well done? Is that... Are you sure? Because let's, let's go make a perfect medium cheeseburger, okay? I know the risk of talking to you about food at this hour, but we're going we're to put some applewood smoked bacon on there. We're going to toast the, the buns. We're going to put a perfect stage six Roma tomato, okay? And you're going to eat this medium burger, okay? And it's so juicy and so good. And to see that light bulb go off of like, well done. I'm done with that. Medium, here I am. I love I loved that as a trainer. I love seeing long-term directors and general managers see 
and get that the way that they treated their people actually impacted their bottom line. That was fun to me. I enjoyed that. It was a pleasure to see them get it. This is what it's like to be trained by Christ. You don't have this dour school marm who's just waiting to pounce and, and wrap your knuckles when you mess it up. No, you, with Jesus, he's not merely pulling for you. He's empowering you by his spirit. He's rejoicing to see you grow in holiness. You have a father who loves you like a son. He disciplines you for your good so that you might share in his holiness even though this discipline, this growth, this training, it seems painful rather than pleasant. The father does it anyway because he knows that for those who've been trained by his discipline, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12, 10 and 11. The fact that the Trinity is involved in our sanctification in training us in godliness, that should tell us something. It should tell us that the battle against remaining sin the temptations of the world, and the attacks of the enemy, it's going to be hard fought. This is war, but grace provides the way and the means to fight it. So grace trains us, Jesus in the flesh, verse 12, trains us what not to do and what to do. It's a two-front war. To renounce the idea of, of continual forsaking, this is ongoing, ungodliness and worldly passions training us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. In one verse, you have the whole puzzle of sanctification. You have the sin that needs to be killed. You have the affections that need to increase. The same grace that saves, sanctifies. In war, we need to know our enemy. What's ungodliness? Whatever opposes God in thought and action. Worldly passions, that just means corrupt desires. These two phrases help us know our enemy. The battles to be fought against an enemy whose power has been broken, but presence remains. You know this, but one of the, the schemes of the enemy is to get you to discount your own sin, to get you to minimize it, to rationalize it, to underestimate it. Our lives testify to this. Take the most prevalent command in Titus 2. Over the last week, where have you minimized, rationalized your lack of self-control? Maybe it was in your thought life. Maybe in anger towards a spouse or, or children. Maybe there's a time where you just gave yourself completely over to fear and went down the trajectory of what if and what if and what if. Maybe it was just repeatedly using your time for just you. Brothers and sisters, those situations, they're not just minor discretions. They weren't just setbacks in your journey to become a better person. They were battles on the front line of a war. And if we're brutally honest, at times it feels like all we are doing is giving up ground to our own corrupt desires. So what do we do? There's hope. There's hope in this passage. Go back to verse 12. Grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Grace trains us how to replace what is evil with what is good. Now, I, I know I said earlier, I need you to remember this, but man, this one I really need you to remember. Grace trains us 
how to replace what is evil with what is good. If I tell you, stop thinking about a gigantic pink elephant. I mean, if you, if you just successfully, like you're forcing yourself to think, all right, he's purple, but he's still a giant elephant. It's hard. If I tell you, okay, to, to just stop thinking about what's ungodly, just focus on not giving in to your selfish desires, the sins are still setting the agenda. They're still your focus. The only way to kill an old corrupt desire is for it to be replaced with a new and better one. Puritan Thomas Chalmers, he describes this truth as the expulsive power of a new affection. Please fight for this truth. Think about it like this. We used to have some gigantic pin oaks in our uh, front yard And those things were stubborn. The leaves would die. They would turn brown. They would wither. And they would hang on to those branches all the way through March. So what would finally push those dead, withered leaves out of the way was the growth and life of a new leaf. The key to living the Christian life is to see that your pattern of sin will decrease as your affection for Christ increases. There have been multiple men within this body who call me and say, would you be my accountability partner? Would you be the one that gets the report from, from covenant eyes? Would you be the one that looks and sees what's on my computer? My answer is no. I will be your accountability partner to stoke our mutual affections for Jesus Christ because that's the only way that that sin gets defeated. That's it. If we can put all the parameters in that we want to, and those may be good and right, but the way that that old, corrupt, twisted desire is replaced is with a new and better one, and his name is Jesus Christ. Hang on to this. How does Christ train us both to kill sin and grow in godliness? Through the word of God, we read it this morning. We read 2 Timothy All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And you know, in every sermon, the preacher is eventually going to tell you, hey guys, you need to read your Bible. Okay. So we're at that place. You know that God's word is a gift. You know that reading it regularly is a blessing. So then we ignore the Bible to our own detriment and harm. For us to expect to grow in godliness without reading God's word is like being starving and sitting down at an empty dinner table and just expecting to feel full without eating. Come to God's word, eat, feast. Where else will you have your desires, your ungodliness, your corruption confronted and corrected? by the loving grace of God. Come feast on his word. Be renewed by the gift of his truth. We're trained by grace when we understand that God created us in Christ for good works, Ephesians 2, 10. God himself has prepared these works for us to do. This is why we can be zealous for them, Titus 2, 14. Why? Because we know the character of our God. We know that our Father is good. Since He's good, what He plans for us is good. So if He has work prepared for us to do, then they're a part of His plan to make us more like His Son, more upright, more godly, 
more self-control. He knows our strengths and weaknesses. He knows you. So consider that the works he's prepared for you to do are specific because he loves you. He knows what you need. Any parent in the room, you, you know this concept with chores. I don't need the kids to, to sweep, to do the laundry, to take out the garbage and, and do the dishes. I don't need them to do it. Heather and I could do it, but it's for their good to grow into responsible young adults. How much more the Lord for his children. I want my kids to be responsible. The father wants us to be like Jesus. So do the good works that he's put in front of you, planned for you to do, and empowers you to do. We're trained by Jesus through the community of believers. We know this as we sing together, pray together, thank the Lord together, encourage and love one another. We realize that we are a part of somebody else's sanctification. God has planned for us to be a part of someone else maintaining self-control. The number of times that in growth group, I turn to humor when it needs to be serious. I'm helping someone grow in self-control and patience with me. You are a part of somebody else's plan to grow in godliness. How wise is our God to put us together? I mean, sanctification is a group project. Jesus gave himself to redeem a people for his own possessions. Plural, we're meant to grow together. Don't turn your back on that gift. Don't ignore that blessing. So finally, what comes next? The appearing of his glory. We grow in godliness by anticipating the return of Jesus. And unfortunately, some of us grew up dreading the second coming of Jesus. We, we were taught that, man, you better be found doing the right thing when Jesus comes back. Kind of a wait till your father gets home is perhaps how you were taught about the return of Jesus. But what we see in verse, verse 13 the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is our blessed hope. We wait for his return, not as a criminal waits to be sentenced by the judge, but as a bride who can't wait, who anticipates the return of her groom. She's getting ready. She can't wait to see him. It's positive. It's hopeful. It's loving. As a people for his own possession, we wait for reality to finally be revealed. And here's, here's what I mean. We're driving down 321 and, and clouds or fog is over the mountains. We, we know the mountains are still there. We get up in, in the morning and it's pouring down rain. It's overcast. We know the sun is still there. And we know that our king reigns right now, even when hidden by the darkness of a world that hates him. He still reigns. So on that day, King Jesus will be revealed for who he actually is. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. God has said, let light shine out of darkness. And he has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a truth that will be known. There won't be a rock to hide under. We will proclaim it. So as we think about the Christian life, we see that the key to it all, the key to it all is Jesus Christ. It begins, ends, and is carried by Jesus Christ. We're pushed by his grace. We're pulled by his glory. 
To that end, we can say with the saints in the revelation to Jesus, our groom, the spirit and the bride say, come. And the grace, hope, and glory of God, Jesus Christ himself responds, surely, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Father, we thank you for the the truth of your word that you save us. You train us. You sanctify us. You untwist our desires and our hearts and you set them upon yourself and you're coming back this news is awesome so father we we pray that that you would press this truth into our hearts into our minds and that we would be in your word being constantly reminded of what's true that you are reigning that you are trustworthy we can rest, we can move, we can live. All of our being is in our union with your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.